Hello, you're listening to Pod Academy. To begin at the beginning. It is spring, moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible black. The cobble streets silent and the hunched quarters and rabbits wood limping invisible down to the slow black, slow black, crow black, fishing boat bobbing sea. 2014 is the centenary of the birth of the poet Dylan Thomas. Scarlett Maguire went to talk to Dr Leo Meller, who writes and teaches about 20th century literature, particularly Anglo-Welsh literature and modernism, in Murray Edwards College, Cambridge, where he's the Romagill Fellow in English. She started by asking Dr Meller, what's so special about Dylan Thomas that the centenary of his birth is being celebrated around the world? I think it's to do with his with the way he brings a particular intensity to language to the way that he writes poems that force or push language into moments of unexpected power and beauty and strangeness he makes us see everyday things as strange again and he sees or he helps us see a beauty in things that one would not normally consider beautiful. Like? I suppose you would think of... I suppose you could think of his uh, most famous radio play, Under Milk Wood, and how he takes the average life of people in a little town, their petty jealousies, their loves, their desires, and transforms them into something that is funny, beautiful and terribly moving and it is just one night in one little Bible black town The houses are blind as moles though moles see fine tonight in the snouting velvet dingles or blind as Captain Cat there in the muffled middle by the pump and the town clock the shops in mourning the welfare hall in widow's weeds Do you think he captures Wales? He captures a certain part of Wales but he also turns Wales into a place that is shaped by Dylan Thomas's way of looking and thinking and feeling about things. So this is not reportage. This is not the lives of people as lived in the 1930s and 40s in his formulation of South Wets Wales um, around Swansea. It's he takes things from an area and he transforms them. Undermilk Wood is celebrated around the English-speaking world. So it's, it's much bigger than Wales, isn't it? Yes, because it's a way of using radio, using a medium where you don't get to see anything. You get to see in your mind's eye the characters who are constructed through how they speak and how they're described by other people and the sound effects. So... It's a play that is apparently about a small seaside town in West Wales, but uses the medium to do something quite incredible. He's most famous for Undermilk Wood, but also there are his poems. It's important for us to remember how long his career was. He died aged 39, but he, he was writing poems as a teenager, and these are not 
adolescent works. These are published in, well, in the volume 18 poems, and they are amazingly good. These are, I will read the first stanza of the first poem from 18 Poems, I See the Boys of Summer. I see the boys of summer in their ruin, lay the gold tithings barren, setting no store by harvest, freeze the soils. There in their heat the winter floods, of frozen loves they fetch the girls, and drown the cargoed apples in their tides. You can see here his take on surrealism, his take of bringing together strange elements to make something new and beautiful, but also this return he makes again and again. Even though he grows up in Swansea, he grows up in a city, he returns again and again to the rural hinterland of south-west Wales and especially parts of Ceredigion, um, where his relatives lived and where he went and stayed in farms and villages. And Fernhill, another one? Fernhill Fernhill is written right at the other end of his career, but yes, it is also a poem that uses this mythical quality of childhood, of looking back at childhood, and of a pastoral beauty. But it's a pastoral beauty that is unsteady. It's scared. We can think of Thomas in many terms. Uh, he was a precocious poet. He burst onto the scene. He terrified London. He was a sensation. We can think of him as a wartime poet. I think some of his best poems were written in the Second World War. We can think of him as a filmmaker. He, he worked as a screenwriter from 1942 onwards for Strand Films. We can think of him as a short story writer. Um, some of the best strangest short stories in English uh, were written by him in the 30s. And then we can think of him in the late 40s and early 50s returning to these childhood scenes through Undermilk Wood, which of course is written right at the end of his life, but also poems such as Fern Hill. Now, as I was young and easy under the apple boughs, about the lilting house, and happy as the grass was green, the night above the dingle starry. Time let me hail and climb, golden in the heydays of his eyes, and honoured among wagons I was prince of the apple towns, and once below a time I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barleys down the rivers of the windfall light. These are poems that people return to again and again. He has never been out of print, but they're also poems that benefit from rereading at different stages in your life because they start to mean different things and tell you different things. And I think that, for me, would be one of the hallmarks of greatness. He not only survives rereadings, he changes you by your rereading of him. Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night is one is a poem that you found very personal. Yes. It's a very powerful, very moving poem, and it's a poem that I read at my grandfather's funeral. My grandfather, he was Welsh, so I called him Tide, and it's a poem that is often read at funerals. 
there are good reasons for that. It's a poem that lets us be angry about death, but also lets us see why and how it is inevitable. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning they, do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright, their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men, who caught and sang the sun in flight, and learn too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men, near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light. We don't think of Dylan Thomas as a war poet, but actually that you see his his poems of the early 40s when he was in London as war poems. Yes. When I talk to my students about war poetry in the 20th century, they return again and again to poets of the First World War, especially Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen. But if one thinks of the Second World War, Thomas is a significant poet, if not the most significant poet, partly because the poems are powerful and extraordinary, but partly because he captures one of the terrifying and strange facts of the Second World War, which was you were more in danger if you were a civilian in London than if you were in the armed forces up until D-Day and the invasion of Europe. More people died in the bombing of London than had died at Dunkirk. And Thomas spends most of the nineteen of the Second World War in London, and he works for Strand Films, and he writes short stories, and he writes very powerful and moving letters, especially to his friend Vernon Watkins, about the experience of bombing and the strange sights he sees. He also writes about the problem of mourning, the problem of mourning deaths in wartime and how he was uncomfortable with poets being co-opted into expressing sorrow and grief and being told to make meanings from people being blown apart in the streets or in the houses where they lived. It was a time where the saying, as safe as houses, meant nothing. This is a poem Dylan Thomas wrote in 1941 after he saw a newspaper headline, and the newspaper headline became the title of the poem. Among those killed in the dawn raid was a man aged a hundred. When the morning was waking over the war, he put on his clothes and stepped out, and he died. The locks yawned loose and a blast blew them wide. He dropped where he loved on the burst pavement stone and the funeral grains of the slaughtered floor. Tell his street on its back he stopped a son, 
and the craters of his eyes grew spring shoots and fire, when all the keys shot from the locks and rang. Dig no more for the chains of his grey-haired heart, the heavenly ambulance drawn by a wound, assembling weights for the spades ring on the cage. Oh, keep his bones away from that common cart. The morning is flying on the wings of his age, and a hundred storks perch on the sun's right hand. A possible problem for Dylan Thomas is that his poetry is sometimes overshadowed by the stories of his life, most of which appear to be spent in pubs. There are two sides to this. Partly it is his own myth-making. He was a larger-than-life personality and he conjured up stories about his own drinking and his own capacity to drink. So there's a strand coming from him. And there's also a strand of how we want our poets to live fast and die young, to behave badly, to get drunk and fall over. Thomas obviously drank and drank heavily at points, but no one could have written the poems he wrote and the stories and the journalism and appeared on the radio so much if he was an alcoholic who spent all his time in pubs. He spent a lot of time in pubs because it was a way of meeting people and discussing poetry with his friends. And when he went home, after drinking far less than rumour always has it, he would then write, and he would write and rewrite, and he would work on a poem until he was happy with it. And we can see there have been tremendous exhibitions this year at the National Library of Wales of all his worksheets and archive material that have been lent from the uh, University of Buffalo and you can see how hard he works at a single line, how hard he works at a single phrase, how hard he works choosing the right word. This is not the action of a man who is a habitual drunk. This is the action of a man who wants to craft poetry. What do you think he's got to say to us today? It's the centenary of his birth. He died early, halfway through the last century. Is he still relevant? Yes. He shows that you can be a popular poet who is complex and does complex things. He shows that you can have a wide, non-academic audience and deal with big, troubling philosophical issues. And he shows how you can make beauty out of the strangest things. And I think that is an important lesson for anyone writing today. And so he was popular even at the time. He's he not was, just celebrated no, afterwards. No, he, he was very, very popular at the time. Uh, mainly from, the, from 1940 onwards, when he publishes the collection Deaths and Entrances. Uh, but then, after the war, especially after Under Milkwood, and he is, of course, popular across the world. He, I've been recently talking with Dylan Thomas scholars from Finland, from France, from India... He is also someone who keeps on giving because you find. There is a new collected poems out which uh, has a lot of previously hidden material, some of it very good, some of it ephemeral. But uh, who could not be interested by a Dylan Thomas drinking song, which has been recently found in an archive by a professor from Swansea? 
he is a poet who can always be rediscovered and when read especially when first read by people in their teenage years he gives this amazing electric galvanic shock through the system with the idea that poetry can do all of these things and it can be this beautiful and this strange and this troubling because we want sometimes to take easy lessons from poets and from poems one of the great things about Dylan Thomas is he gives us beauty and he gives us moments of lyrical insight but he doesn't tell us that everything is going to be nice and everything is going to be okay I think that is probably an important thing we can also learn Thank you Leo Mella There are more podcasts on writers and writing including George Orwell, Jeff Dyer Harry Kunzru at podacademy.org